Welcome to Fast Fiction. A neighbor's best friend. I liked her as soon as we met. She was my idea of an ideal neighbor, one who stayed on her side of the fence. Apparently, these sentiments appealed to her too. So for a good many years, that's exactly what happened. We were the best of neighbors who hardly saw or spoke to each other. But as time went on and we realized we shared a mutual respect for privacy, we began to relax the rule of merely acknowledging a good morning or good evening or the inevitable do you think we'll get any rain to more intimate neighborly gossip. By the fifth year, we were almost friends. By the eighth year, well, I think we were. Of course, by now we knew a fair bit about each other. For instance, in my case, I was a happily married mom of two primary school age boys. JC was an academic. I was into part-time anything jobs and mature age university courses. And we both loved movies. On the other hand, they were both well into middle age and childless. He owned business properties in the city, including a fine arts and jewellery shop, and she was an artist of reasonable reputation. Both, like us, loved parties and movies. But it was their wicked sense of humour that really cemented our relationship. She had a direct and ascorbic wit, which Harold counteracted with a pseudo-downtrodden persona, which fooled nobody. When together at home, they were as totally disrespectful with each other as only a happily married couple of forty years can be. When catching sight of me through the green hedgerow that served as our boundary, she would call out cheerily, If that silly old fart of a husband is hiding down in your shed with your husband, remind him it's his once a year day and my Chanel number five will only last another five minutes. To which his reaction, if he had popped over for a chat and a beer, would be somewhere in the vicinity of Don't tell the witch any alcohol has passed my lips, else she'll put me on rations again tonight. Connie and Harold Harrelson had been newlyweds themselves when they had moved into their two-acre block in the early 1930s, when the Depression was still holding a grip on country towns. Somehow Harold's job had enabled them to weather the financial devastation enough that they were able to adopt altruistic measures to help less fortunate families. For instance, the swimming pool, now our pride and joy, had been built out of local bluestone on a natural plateau, halfway down the rolling slope of their garden. The stone was hewn from a local quarry and provided builders with a few days' work a week, meticulously rostered so that as many labourers as possible could share in the limited bounty of paid employment. This gave the Harrelsons a sort of squiredom position in the neighbourhood, which they had enjoyed but never abused. The pool was eventually extended to a barbecue area on a slightly tiered extension. More local materials provided tables and chairs, very grand, especially for the 1930s. It was this part of the garden that 40 years later they eventually sold off to us, 
once a further access was available through an easement, and that's how my family found itself the owners of almost an acre of gently sloping land that boasted a magnificent, if somewhat dilapidated, natural stone swimming pool and party area, and very little money with which to build a house to go with it. But build we did, carefully and cleverly designing a house that nestled into the hill, took maximum advantage of the view, and at the same time was not obtrusive to our topside neighbours. To begin with, Connie and Harold were rarely home. Harold had business interests in Europe and spent a good part of his time travelling, favouring Holland as his main base, where apparently he bought a number of small units. Connie would travel with him some of the time, but by her own admission got bored with being clean all the time. This was her metaphor for not having a garden with which to wrestle. Both Connie and Harold loved good wine and good food, and when they were home, it was rare for a weekend to pass without being invited to a party. By our meagre academic standards, it was always an extravagant affair, far different from when we played host, but we enjoyed them immensely. Even so, they appeared to attend our simple poolside barbecues with equal enthusiasm and entertained our kids and guests by recanting humorous anecdotal stories of the past, which managed to make the camaraderie of the depression something to envy. And so the circle of life continued turning until we ourselves reached an age similar to that of Connie and Harold when we first moved in. By now, they were distinctly elderly. Nevertheless, life had been kind to them. Good health had allowed their overseas visits to continue, and their general joie de vie for social gatherings never sated. Then, on one of Harold's lone visits to Holland, he was involved in an automobile accident. He died on the way to hospital. I offered to accompany Connie to Europe for her sad task of funeral arrangements, but she declined. No, love, thanks. No, there's not too much point in forking out good money for a corpse, love, and I'll be in such a rotten mood all the way, you wouldn't have much fun. I declined trying to tell her that fun had not been the object of the offer. Instead, I drove her to the airport, gave her a hug, and told her I'd be thinking of her. A few weeks later, she was back, rambling around the garden in her usual fashion, dressed in sloppy tracksuit and oversized sun hat. She waved cheerily when she saw me calling out, Coffee pots on! which was as near as I would get to an invitation. I climbed the gentle rise up the hill to her old cottage, taking a moment as I always did to revel in the view from her back door. Her garden was a wild profusion of trees and shrubs that allowed only a mere glimpse of our rooftop nestled down below with the merest flash of blue indicating the presence of the pool. The gazebo we had built to extend the barbecue area was always covered with flowering vines and completed the wonderful vista the Harrelsons had enjoyed throughout their married life. I wondered if Connie was now thinking of leaving. I desperately hoped not. The aroma of freshly brewed fine coffee was enticing as I entered the long timber cottage strewn with her many craft projects and walled almost entirely by artwork purchased overseas. 
we sat down on her patio, halfway between her two worlds of home and garden, as I answered her questions about my two boys' progress, now both employed and married, and we exchanged memories of their early escapades stealing avocados from Connie's garden before they were ripe. Little devils used them as missiles, they did, she mused. I told them I'd turn their eyes if I caught them. Christ, couldn't say it now, could I? Not with all this PC stuff and legal argy-bargy always in the news. She chatted on easily about her recent trip, neither making much or little of it. It was only when I was getting ready to leave, she said casually. By the way, I brought the old bugger home. She nodded to a small urn on the dresser. Just wondered if it would be all right to pop him down at the barbie. It was always his favourite place. I knew exactly where she meant, for they had both often joked that when the pool and pergola had been built, Connie and Doug had placed two Alibaba-type ornate pots either side of the steps as sentinels, now overflowing with geraniums. They were just the size and shape for traditional crematorium urns to be stored. A little surprised, I nodded. Of course, Connie. Would you like to have a small service, a, a sort of memorial? Her craggy old face turned into a wreath of smiles. What a great idea. We'll have a proper Irish wake for the silly sod. He always did hate the Irish, even though he knew his grandma had been born in Dublin. And so it was. A small group of neighbours and friends were invited, but like moss on a rolling stone, this grew. In addition to many of the city fathers, we were graced by at least two ex-mayors, a couple of aldermen, bank managers, the superintendent of the local police force, and our current local state member. As usual, where Connie was concerned, it turned out to be a noisy but merry affair. She insisted on arranging the catering and picking up the tab for the liquor, which must have been horrendous, as everything was of the best. Then, at a reasonable time in the proceedings, Harold was put to rest in the font to the left of the steps. It now sported his initials, H.J.H., and for no good reason I can remember, everyone stood and held hands whilst we sang Old Lang Syne. Then, when in a particularly sanguine mood, where the odd tear was flowing down wrinkled cheeks, Connie suggested the fellows, Water him in, boys! To which the ladies turned their backs with shrieks of either real or feigned embarrassment before the party came to a natural conclusion. It turned out to be the last party Connie enjoyed, for only a few weeks later I went up to check on her and saw her hobbling around on some crude homemade crutches. She looked very old and frail. Tripped over when I tried to get that blooming tree stump out, she bellowed as I got near. It bloody near killed me. Indeed, it did just that. For a week later, she was taken to hospital with pneumonia. She lapsed into a coma and died a few days later. It was a good way to go, for she had not been weathering, getting old, with any kind of grace or dignity. That Betty Davis was right when she said old age ain't for wimps, being her favourite expression. But she had been active to the end, and although my loss was immeasurable, I was happy for her final release. 
The house was put up for sale by a distant family member, and being in a prime spot, within a few days it was sold to a young family, who moved in almost immediately. They were a couple with two primary school-age boys, and so the circle of life continued once more. But a strange legacy occurred a week or so ago, which had J.C. and I bewildered, and even now has not been resolved. I was not surprised to receive a request from Connie's solicitor, who had the double role of being a mutual friend of ours, as well as hers. Apparently, Connie had written a letter to him a few weeks prior to her death, formally requesting she be cremated with her ashes put in an urn that could be sealed in the remaining sentinel at the pergola. This in itself was no surprise. Of course, we had expected and even discussed it with her. So we held a small and this time little more circumspect tribute and service to this fun-loving lady that I felt privileged to be able to call neighbour for so many years. But only when the last guest had gone did our mutual friend, the solicitor, come up to us and solemnly say that he had a personal letter from Connie that he had been instructed to deliver at this time. It was a standard-sized sealed envelope addressed to us in Connie's untidy scrawl. Somewhat bemused, J.C. and I sat by the light of the stars in the quietude of the remaining evening and read her letter, stumbling over the bad writing and generally having difficulty in making sense of it. However, after a few reads and re-reads, it came out this way. First, her thanks for our neighbourliness and friendship over the years, which, according to her, had been worth more than blooming gold. Second, her thanks for providing the final resting place for both herself and Harold, with the promise to look over use both and keep use both butte, and a final section, almost a postscript at the end. Just in case there aren't too many parties going on where we are, we'd like to think we could still attend yours. We've always loved this spot, and it means a lot to us knowing we can be here with you. Of course, partying is getting expensive these days, so we thought you wouldn't mind if we contributed to any you might have. We've done our duty to the blooming government, paid our taxes and donated to a good many charities, so reckon we've bought our ticket into heaven. But see, Harold had a few good business deals in Amsterdam. So if you get a bit strapped for cash or or whatever, just have a rummage around in his leftovers. You'll find a little compartment at the bottom of his urn with a small package inside. Like Marilyn Monroe, you just may discover diamonds are a neighbour's best friend. We haven't rummaged yet, nor feel the need to. Yet, J.C. and I both agree that if we should ever sell the house, we could well be tempted to take our neighbours with us. You have been listening to A Neighbour's Best Friend, written and read by Brianda Cross. Please visit fastfiction.com for more stories and maybe like us on the Facebook page. Thank you.